Okay, so uh, tonight is week four of our journey through the scriptures. I promised you it would be eight weeks, and I guess I lied, because it looks like it's not going to be eight weeks, um, because I don't think I'm going to get through all this tonight. So it might be nine weeks, might be ten weeks, I don't know, we'll see. Um, But we are working on eight major plot lines, not plot lines, eight major guideposts that we can trace the unfolding progression of God's revelation. Remember, these are some big words and we're building, but we are looking at how God is slowly, over time and in segments, revealing himself through his word and through the way that he acts. And if we're going to be responsible in how we understand the Bible, we have to pay attention to that unfolding, that gradual revealing, and read responsibly. But it also helps us have some bookmarks, right? It also helps us have some uh, guideposts that will help us know where we are in the story. Now, the main way that we're doing this is we are saying that the whole goal of the Bible and the whole goal of history is for us, is for God to bring his kingdom. The kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God in the world that he has created in the universe he has created, that's the point. And for us all to see him as king, to love him as king, and to obey him as king so that he gets all the glory. That's the point, right? And so we've been defining God's kingdom as God's people in, tell me church, God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. That's right. Okay, so we've been using this chart. Um, that shows the first three phases. Is that, would that be current? Okay, so in the first, and I'm not going to do much review because we got more to cover. Um, but in the first section, uh, we see, here you go, bud. Who are God's people? Well, it's, it's Adam and Eve, and they are in God's place, which is the garden, and they are under God's rule. And since they're under God's rule, his word, they have perfect relationship with God. God's rule is always connected to God's blessing. If you obey it, you get the blessing. If you disobey it, you get curses. Okay, that's the pattern of the Bible. And again, if I could just, one of the major things we're doing, and tonight, a lot of what we're talking about, you may be thinking, hey, I already know this, and that's great. But be thinking about patterns. Be thinking, how does this unfold? That's the key thing that we're chasing um, in this class. All right? Uh, And I'm not going to review all this. I might review it next time. Um, And just so you know, next week I will be on vacation, so I will not be here. Uh, So we will not be having Bible study before I forget to say that next uh, next Wednesday. But we plan to be back, Lord willing, the next week, uh, sunburnt and exhausted with... Because we we're vacating with three children. Okay. Um, so, that's right. Okay, but tonight, we are work, so we've worked our way through the pattern of the kingdom. And we've worked our way through the perished kingdom and the promised kingdom. And now, tonight, we come to the partial kingdom. And this is where people often get tripped up, is understanding how much of God's promises have been fulfilled at certain points. And how do we apply that? We often flatten this. Now, if you don't have all this written down, it's okay. It's all online. You can go on there and press download and you can get this whole chart filled out. Um, Not a problem, all right? Uh, But tonight, 
since we, and let me just say it like this, so far we've made it through 12 chapters or 15 chapters of the first book of the Bible, right? So that's one-fourth of one of 66 books. So, so we're on pace to finish in 2020. Um, but we're going to try to start moving a little bit quicker and, and not get lost in the details. Sometimes I struggle with that. Uh, but tonight, and I think probably the next week, we're going to be covering the history of Israel, beginning with Abraham, which is the beginning of Israel, all the way to the high point of the monarchy, which is Solomon. Um, so I, we're not going to get to do it. We're going to cover half of that tonight. Um, and so what we've been seeing, we've been seeing three main elements in God's promise to Abraham. You remember we said that the promise to Abraham is so central to the Bible. You cannot understand so much of Paul's letters and so much of Jesus' teaching and so much of the Old Testament if you don't understand that promise. And we've said, we've seen in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, that the promise to Abraham had three major components. God told Abraham that he was going to give him a people, he was going to make him a people, a nation, and he's going to put them in a place, the land, and that they were going to be a blessing to all the world. God says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all of the world through you. All right, this is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And we've said this is the early formula. This is the early picture of the gospel, right? We can flash forward and see how God brought the gospel through a descendant of Abraham. But it's a little bit bigger than that. We don't want to simplify that too much. Now, um, tonight, we, or probably next week, we're going to look at how some of those promises begin to be partially fulfilled, I want to say that word partial because we, we have problems in Israel's history in all of, these, all of these categories tonight. But we're also going to begin to see that there's, there's another promise that God adds to Israel, and that is the promise of a king. Okay, so God expands and unfolds. All right, now for cleanliness and speed, this made me nervous making this slide because it doesn't, it's not perfect. So don't, this isn't like technical, this is just general. But we've seen these four big, four big promises. God's people, God's rule, God's place, and soon we'll see God's king who's going to bring all these things. And we're seeing partial fulfillment, and you can roughly use these um, chapters to guide you, okay? So that's what we're going to kind of be thinking. Remember guideposts. You can see elements of it all throughout, but that's uh, the rough way that we're going we're going to look at that, all right? Now, let's start with looking at God's people. We'll probably cover God's people. Uh, we'll cover God's people first, all right? So re remember, what is the promise? Remember, God told Abraham, Genesis 12, I'm going to make you a great nation. Later on in 17, he says, nations. All right? He's expanding it even bigger. He's saying, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing. He says this a little bit differently in Exodus, where he says, he says to Israel, I'm going to take you to be, this is a beautiful phrase, my people. My people. So this is getting bigger. You see, God's not just saying, Abraham, I'm going to make your family awesome. He's saying, I'm going to make it huge and it's mine. 
it's mine. You are my people. And we're going to see how he expands on that. Now, we are going to see partial fulfillment of this in uh, starting in Genesis um, chapter 15. Let's look at how this partial fulfillment begins to unfold. Again, you're probably familiar with some of these, but try to, try to make some new connections. Let's start first in talking about Abraham and Isaac. Now, you have to notice that as we have started with Abraham, we've seen God is taking a people and he's making them a nation for himself. God's nation, right? These are God's people. And when we think about the story of Abraham, one of the things that has to stand out the most is that the story of Abraham is not just that God keeps his promise, but it's how. It's how God keeps his promise. Remember, if God is sovereign over history, then the way that he chooses to allow history to happen is a part of what he's revealing to us. And especially true with Abraham. Let me explain. God's promise is fulfilled, but it is not fulfilled smoothly. It is full of setbacks and bumps and turns all along the way. Sometimes it's a problem that arises because there's a famine. Sometimes there's a problem because there's a whole bunch of sinners that God's working with, right? We see time and time again obstacles coming up before God. And what does God do? He just sweeps right through them. He sorts them all out, but sometimes it takes 400 years, okay? So we're seeing that the first, I mean, the first major setback is God's made this incredible problem, promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a nation. That means children. But what's the problem? Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. Okay, so it is impossible to have a great nation without having any children. It's, it's impossible to have a great family without having any children. The whole key to this operation is for Sarah to have children. Now, that's something, like, we get biologically how this works, right? We, we often get confused with understanding creation and thinking that we are powerful, okay? We understand how babies are made. Clearly a stork comes and drops the things in your yard, right? We understand how that works, but we can't control it. Like, there's some cause and effect there. I think you know what I'm talking about, but we can't, we can't control it. If you've dealt with infertility, you understand this in a very real way. Infertility reminds us we are not in control. We are not as in control as we think. And that's exactly what Abraham and Sarah experienced. But it wasn't like a few months or a couple years. Decades. Decade after decade, they have this promise haunting them in an empty cradle. Right? I'm sure they had the nursery already. And decade after decade. So... Abraham, he's a fixer, right? So he does what Adam and Eve did. He decides to play God. So he and Sarah sort out this arrangement with his uh, concubine, Hagar. They're like, all right, God made us this promise. We're going to have a great nation. All right, I'll just sleep with another woman. Bad idea, right? Um, so Sarah gives Abraham to Hagar, his Egyptian concubine, and that produces Ishmael. Now, God makes it very clear that the descendants, God, first of all, God doesn't destroy Abraham and Sarah. We often skip those things, right? We've already seen God wiping people off the earth. Why not Abraham and Sarah? 
Well, because he's promised to relate to them in covenant. All right, so uh, the, God makes it clear the descendants of Ishmael are not going to be his people. Eventually, they become the Midianites, all right? But, so God is still in covenant with Abraham, and so more time passes. Still no baby. Sarah still does not conceive, but eventually, God reappears to Abraham and assures him, even though your wife is 90, I'm going to give you a son. What does Sarah do? She laughs. She laughs at God. God, what do you know about the human body? Right? Don't you know that I'm 90? Well, as we saw on Sunday, God is the one who does the laughing. Or this past Wednesday, God's the one who does the laughing. A year later, Sarah conceives and gives birth to Isaac, the son of laughter. Right? Okay, so what's God doing? I mean, what is the delay? Why are there decades and decades of delay? And if you know the story, there are more delays and there are more empty wombs and there is more sin, more infertility. Well, God is making it clear that his promise is brought about without any help from humans. None. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. God does not need human assistance. He is teaching Abraham and he's teaching us that if the promise of God, think gospel, if the promise of God is going to be fulfilled, only God can bring it about. Now let's think about this specifically in terms of the gospel. The gospel requires a miracle. It requires a birth, doesn't it? A new birth. And it's laughable to the outside world. To be saved, that requires a miraculous birth that not you and I initiate, but that God initiates. The only work that Abraham did was to trust in the promise. And we are saved the same way. You and I brought as much to our salvation as Abraham brought to his nation. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? You can't boast. You cannot boast. So we're finally our way, we were finally making our way into a nation. Or at least one child, right? Or so it seems for one chapter. Because in Genesis chapter 22, we have another roadblock. God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Okay? Now, what hope is there for this nation if the only member of the nation is killed or dies? <laughs> I mean, that, that wouldn't work. Well, Abraham's faith at this point had grown. And we should recognize that the incident with, with Isaac and God's call for him to sacrifice Isaac, yes, it is, it's about Abraham's obedience, but it's even bigger than that. It's, it's, it's centered around God's promise. God's promise. We know this because of Hebrews chapter 11. You remember the hall of faith where it says, it's talking about Abraham and it says, Abraham was so convinced that God was going to give him what he promised that he believed he'd bring him back from the dead if he had to, right? It's more, this is more than a father's love for his son that he waited a long time for. It's much bigger than that. This is about the promise, the covenant. There's much more at stake and so we can learn from, from Abraham's example. When you cannot make sense of what's happening, when you can't sort out what God's doing in your life, trust in the promises of God. 
And trust in the character of God. I won't have time to develop that theme as much. But trust in the character of God. That's what, that's what Abraham did. He knew the God who was calling him to this seemingly insane thing. But ultimately, and one of the themes that we're noticing is we're not just picking up on historical patterns, but we're seeing major theological ideas in their infancy plotting along the way. So you'll see lots of those tonight. Because this is giving us the picture of faith, of justification by faith. Faith, Abraham's faith is what made him right with God, and that's the model for salvation. But this is also beginning to lay the foundation for the principle of a substitute, right? A ram caught in the thicket. But we got to keep moving. Okay, the next person in this partial fulfillment is Jacob. All right, so uh, Jacob is Isaac's son, and eventually Abraham dies, so the, the story shifts to focusing on how God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then Isaac's son. Isaac marries another barren woman. She's infertile for 60 years. It's like a pattern or something, and then eventually she gives birth to twins. You remember the twins? Jacob and Esau. One of the things, again, to note, it's a supernatural birth. If you're barren for 60 years and then you have twins without any sort of fancy science stuff going on, I mean, this is God clearly working. And Jacob and Esau are more than just two brothers. They are, they are spiritual figures in the New Testament. Paul talks about them all the time, right? This is a supernatural birth. Well, Esau's the oldest, but who gets the blessing? Jacob. Jacob gets the blessing, The line of God is not going through the one that humans would expect, but through the unexpected. God's blessing goes on the youngest. Now, think about Jacob for a minute. We sanitize so many Bible stories. I don't think we mean to, but we sanitize them. Jacob was not a good guy. His name was liar, right? Deceiver. That was, that was his name. Right away, we see him deceiving his father. I mean, <laughs> a man who is basically on his deathbed and has lost almost all his senses. What kind of guy is this? I mean, how can this guy be entrusted with the promise of God? He's a liar, right? And then he turns around and he deceives his brother and steals his birthright. birthright. Why in the world would God choose him? All right, we saw this beginning with Noah. Well, the Bible teaches, whether you like it or not, that God elected Esau, or Jacob, that he elected him. We see God is doing this to prove the point of Jacob. Let's look at a verse that often, I wonder if this is underlined in your Bible. I wonder if anything in Romans 9 is underlined in your Bible. But look at Romans 9, verse 10. Paul's talking about this specifically. He says, how much do I have up there? Do I have it all? Um... When Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. What's what's the point he's making? He's saying in in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So he's saying that while they were in the womb, they had not done anything good or bad. And God still chose. God elected one, though he had done nothing good or bad. He did not choose God. He did not uh, uh, reject God. God chose him. Why? To show that God elects, that God chooses. His purpose of election might continue. Specifically, remember, this sounds like Ephesians 2. Not because of works, 
but because of God. God calls. So she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, so let's think about what this means. I mean, the point is, is that God's grace is grace. It's not distributed on merit. God does not choose people based on merit. And God is building his people not on merit. But he's selecting them. He is electing them. And we see this all throughout the Bible. If you are a Christian, it is not because you're better than anyone else or that you are a very good spiritual decision maker. You're a Christian because of God's sovereign choice. And so we're seeing that God's promise was going to continue through Jacob. Through Jacob. All right. Now, if you think about it, let's pick up where Jacob is. I mean, you remember Jacob wrestled with God, which I think was probably something of a conversion. Uh, during this, he demands a blessing, which he'd already been promised through his uh, forefathers, and he receives it. But what's interesting about it is that Jacob, after wrestling with this man, his name is changed. God, and his character is different. From now on, Jacob is not a deceiver, but he's a patriarch. He's a, he's a man of faith. And in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, God changes Jacob's name. Who knows what Jacob's new name is? Israel. That's a name we are well familiar with. From now on, we have this one man, and early on, rather, we have one man embodying a whole nation, right? And he obviously grows, but we have a point later in history where one man once again embodies a nation. I'll let you think on that. But what's interesting is from now on, Jacob's name is going to be linked with the promises of God. Do you remember? God often identifies himself, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's identified with these covenant promises. We see that in many places. I got to keep going. Joseph, the last major figure in Genesis. We see Joseph, these great truths are, they're introduced to Abraham and they're reaffirmed and developed. I can't, so hard for me to hold back. They are reaffirmed and they are developed and they get bigger it's with, with each generation. Jacob has 12 sons. It's not quite a nation, right? It's, it's like a soccer team with a sub or football team, right? But, but it's not quite a nation, but it's a good start. It's a lot better than an empty womb. And so we see out of these 12 sons, Joseph, who for a while is the youngest, you know the story, he gets enslaved in Israel, and the story focuses now on Joseph. And so the big question for Joseph is why he's being falsely accused and jailed is, is God really in control? Because you can't be a great nation if you're in jail for, for, for copping a feel on your boss's wife, right? It doesn't work like that. You can't be a great nation. But one of the great lessons is we see God preserving his people even through famine. They had no idea what was going on. And God was orchestrating it through all of these wicked things. God's sorting it out. He could have stopped the famine, but he didn't do that, did he? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Genesis 50, 20. 
Church, no matter how much evil there is, no matter what you face in your life, nothing can prevent God from fulfilling his gospel promises to you. Amen. Now, one of the themes that we pick up on in the story of Joseph, Pastor Mark preached on it for three weeks. Uh, I wonder if it blew your mind like it did me, but it's, it's that of adoption. We see Jacob, when, he, when Joseph is reunited with his father, um, obviously I'm assuming you're familiar with the storyline, but when Joseph is reunited with his father, Jacob blesses who? Joseph's sons. So he's taking grandsons and he's adopting them. Well, adoption's a pretty big part of the gospel, isn't it? Right? So early on, we're seeing adoption and it's a part, it's integral even for fulfilling the covenant. So all the stuff unfolds and gathers, gathers steam. But we're told especially to watch out for Judah. Right? You remember Judah? You remember the key thing about Judah? Judah's going to be a king. Genesis 49.10. I know this is a lot of, a lot of things going on, folks. Um, Judah is going to be a king. And we'll pick up on this later. 49.10 says, The scepter, right? That's a royal thing, right? The scepter will not depart from Judah. Like ever. Like there's always going to be a Davidic. Or there's always going to be a king from Judah. Right? And we'll see that to him shall be the obedience of all the people. It's like all the people of the world are going to come under his kingship. I can't be Judah. I can't even be David. Who could that be? Hmm. See, this is important because what's going to happen is, think about it like this. The promises of God, it begins with Abraham, and then it moves to his children, and then eventually, in Exodus, all the promises, God's relating to the nation. Well, then he narrows it down and he, he relates to a king, okay? And so we see God working to bring about his promise through different folks. But now we come to God's people. We're seeing God's people. Remember, we're tracing God's people. Well, now they're slaves, right? You know the story. You know the beginning of Exodus. The 12 sons of Israel uh, seriously are busy in Egypt, and they blossom. Um, let's see. I don't know if I got this on here. I can put, I'll put this up quick. Uh, A couple theological themes that we're seeing in the lives of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Um, But you can follow up on those, on those later. Uh, But we're seeing God's people now, they are enslaved. And remember, you can't be a great nation, and you can't have a land, and you can't be a blessing to other nations if you're in chains. Right? We, we understand that. If God's going to keep his promise, God has to get his people out of slavery. And he does. And boy, does he do it. And as he does it, he reveals all sorts of things about himself and about us. And our, his character and our character. There are themes that are established in Exodus that are, re- are repeated all throughout the Bible. And the prophets, especially if you read Isaiah, every time you hear him referencing the Exodus, he's doing something. He's saying, hey, in the same way God brought them out of slavery, he's going to do it again, right? There's a bigger Exodus, right? And if you you don't see these patterns, you can't understand what, what the prophets are talking about. It's the same thing with the Babylonian captivity and, um, but, but, but here's some of the patterns in Exodus. One is slavery and captivity, right? It's repeated all throughout the scriptures. We see God's people in slavery. One of the great things we learn, when God sees his people in slavery, 
he does something. Now, he may wait for 400 years, but he does something. This is one of the most often quoted texts in our household. Look at this. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is our favorite line. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God sees when his people are in slavery. Now you and I, friends, are not in bondage to a physical master. We have a spiritual master that we are struggling against. the sin. God does not leave his people in slavery. This is a pattern that unfolds throughout the scriptures. Another, another pattern is pattern uh, is salvation by substitution. Um, especially propitiation. All right? If some of these words are overwhelming you, don't worry about it. All right? you'll, 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 catch on, you'll catch on later. Uh, but salvation by substitute. Think the Passover. In Exodus, we see God going head to head with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has his hands full with Yahweh. Exodus 5 verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? Well, he found out, didn't he? When he was drowning in the Red Sea. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. So God unleashes ten plagues. First sermon I ever preached, I said there were twelve plagues. And I had a bunch of people come tell me. And I'm thankful for them. I was, I was 19 and I had hair down to here. Yeah. It was rough. Uh, <laughs> Why did I say that? Okay, so, so God is, in each of these plagues, God is revealing his power over Pharaoh. And again and again, Pharaoh refuses. So we see God pour out his wrath, which is death, right? That's God's wrath always leads to death. He pours it out on the land, kind of like a flood. He's pouring out death and wrath on the land, through killing the firstborn. But God provides an ark for his people. Or God provides a way of escape in the Passover. If they put the Passover lamb's blood on the doorway, this will satisfy God's anger. It will pacify his wrath. That's propitiation, right? Which we pick up on in Romans. We see, now so often when we think about uh, the wrath that God pours out on Egypt, it, it can seem like they're the bad guys and Israel um, is the good guys, right? It, because the way that it focuses on the text. But I mean, but think about this. God's people should have also died for their sin. I mean, they should have just as much been caught up in the, the, the death angel. Think about it. Do you remember their response to Moses when he came into town? It did not go well for Moses. Do you remember after they left, that as soon as they got out to the Red Sea, they were groaning. As soon as they got on the other side of the Red Sea, they were groaning. My favorite part, they groaned because they didn't have onions, right? Oh, I remember the leeks back in Egypt. I can't believe that we came out here, right? They were just as guilty as doubting God as Pharaoh was. And yet God provided a way for them to escape. And the way he does it 
we still celebrate today. Even though the people deserve to die for their sin, God permits another to die in their place. This is preparing us for a greater act of deliverance. The Passover is a shadow. It's a shadow of what's to come. Of course, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Just as Jesus uh, died for the sins of others, right? Jesus is the pa- just as the Passover lamb died for the sins of others, so Jesus died for the sins of others. Think about this in terms of substitute, right? What we're trying to do is see how substitute unfolds throughout the Bible. Some of the, my favorite texts, John one twenty nine, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. What would an Israelite think of when they hear the Lamb of God? They're immediately thinking the Passover, right? The one who died so sinners can live. The Lamb of God, and he adds on to it, who takes away the sins of the world. Another thing to notice is remember when Christ died, what, when did he die? He died during Passover, right? He died during the Passover. Uh, in, and then my favorite, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Listen to um, Israel's deliverance. It's looking to Jesus' deliverance on the cross. It's anticipating it. Cleanse out the old leaven, right? This is Passover talk, right? If you're familiar with the, the rituals of the Passover. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Guys, there's so much in the Bible to spend your life trying to understand. Don't pretend like you know it. Don't pretend like you understand it. I mean, how much, how much could we explore here? All right, I got to keep moving. Um, we also see the pattern, the theme of salvation through conquest. I'll, I'll do this quickly. I can't. I can. I can do it quickly. Pharaoh has second thoughts, right? So he is chasing down these people who are powerless to save themselves, but they don't need to. They don't need to save themselves. God saves them. As Pharaoh is drowning... Interestingly, in another flood, another mini flood, not a worldwide flood, God is pouring out his judgment and now Pharaoh knows that there is a God. God reveals, this is an important theme to pay attention to, God reveals himself to the world through judgment. He reveals himself to the world through judgment. You can know God in Christ or you can know God through judgment. This act of salvation actually foreshadows what God's going to accomplish on the cross. We who were enslaved to sin, right? Like being in bondage in Egypt and the powers of the devil, kind of like Pharaoh, but God defeats them and sets them free. Colossians 2:15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame. <laughs> like drowning them or killing their children or drowning their water in blood, right? He put them to open shame and he triumphed over them in, in him, all right? So we're seeing God's people, for them, they're seeing God do what seemed totally impossible. He delivers them from slavery. But he makes it really clear at the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant or the covenant with Israel that this was not just like felt bad for him, Right? He's doing something really specific. Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen... This is the beginning of the, Israel, uh, the covenant with Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagle's wings and what? Brought you to myself. 
Do you remember what did, what did Moses tell Pharaoh to let Israel go to do? You remember? To go worship him, right? To go out into the wilderness and to worship him. They are his people. God is bringing them to himself. God saved Israel to be his people. So, remember, we've already said, think, remember, we're trying to figure out God's his promise to Abraham. God's people. Well, guess what? He just did it. God has just fulfilled his people promise. He's given Abraham a nation, right? Now, it's gonna, not, still not quite there. That's why it's partial. But this is, at the very end, the, the, the end of Exodus is describing the giving of the covenant, which is what is killing me not to discuss, um, and then the law and the tabernacle, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But the key thing to notice is that when God brings them out into the wilderness, it's not enough that they're out there, and he doesn't just plop them in the land. God wants to be near them. God wants to be with his people. And that's what we're going to turn our attention to now. So, okay, so we've covered God's people. The next is God's rule. I know I'm skipping around on my chart. Um, bear with me. God's rule and God's blessing. Remember the promise, and we could look at this in lots of places, is God told Abraham that he's going to bless him. All right, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to let you be a blessing, okay? Now, the way that God fulfills this, the partial fulfillment here, is that God brings his rule to Israel. Remember that to be under God's rule is to enjoy God's blessing. That's the theme we've seen again and again and again. We, to be under God's rule is to enjoy God's blessing. So if Israel is going to enjoy God's blessing, well, they got to get back under his rule. They got to get back under his rule. That is the way, that's the only way that you can know God in relationship and enjoy his presence. Think about it. It's the reversal of the curse. Here we have out in the wilderness, God's people, and God is reversing the curse. <laughs> oh, he's so good. The reversal of the curse. Remember, sin and death bring separation. And the restoration of the law is what brings life. This is one of my favorite Old Testament texts. It's like one of the first ones I understood as a kid. I call heaven and earth witnesses against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, what? Choose life and your offspring may live. Life is found in obedience in relationship to God. Through law keeping, through law giving, God is actually able to draw near to his people again, actually to his people, his new people. We're going to see God do this in two ways. God's law and God's presence. Now, some of this you're probably a little more familiar with, and I've preached on this some, so I'll probably have to go a little bit quicker uh, through, through this portion. But what we see is God's law is given not as a means to be right with God. Do I have that on here? Not as a means to be right with God. Israel is already God's people. Right? They were already God's people through his grace and before they got the law. That's really important to understand. They were God's people before they got the law. Israel was redeemed before they got the law. They didn't need the law to keep the law to be God's people. God plucked them out. Right? He, he put them on eagle's wings and he brought them to himself. So there's a different purpose for the laws I've preached on in the past. But we see, especially in the Old Testament, that God's law is, is rooted in his character. 
And his people must reflect that. What all do I, what all do I have here on my slides? The law is not the path to membership, right? A membership with God's community, but it's the path to blessing and enjoyment, right? Um, so the law is rooted in God's character, and God's people must reflect that. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed... Siri's talking to me. Hang on. Hello. Hello. Sorry, folks. Okay. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. I'm not going to be able to to sort all the way through this. Um, But the key thing to, to understand is that God is saying that you are my people. And to be God's people, his people must reflect his character. God's people are to look like God. They're to look like God. Let's see, I'm off on my slides here. Hang on, bear with me a second. Okay. I'll skip this. You can reference some of the stuff I've talked about with the law in the past. So let's think now about God's, about God's presence. Okay, God's presence. We've, we've said that God's bringing his blessing to his people through his law and through his presence, which makes sense because they go up on the mountain to meet with God, right, to get the law, and then God comes down in the tabernacle and dwells with them. Now that Israel is under God's rule, they can enjoy God's presence. And remember, the purpose, the whole purpose of redemption is relationship. The reason that you were saved is not just so you can go to heaven and play golf, right? It's to be with God. If you don't want to be with God, you're not saved. The purpose of, re- of redemption is relationship. God gives Moses a way to do this. He gives him plans for the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle. This is, I'm not going to go through all of this. This is from Tim Chalice's uh, new book, Visual Theology. Um, but he, he picks up on some of the themes here. We see God is giving his people plans for a tabernacle. He's setting up shop to dwell among his people. He's given them his law, right? So they can enjoy his blessing again, which means they get his presence. But now they got to figure out how to tolerate his presence, right? How can, how can they even do that, right? Now, when God gives Moses plans for the tabernacle, there's a couple things to note. First of all, it's a tent, right? It travels with them, right? It travels with them. When they go, the tabernacle goes with them. In the tabernacle, there were two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies, right? If you were to walk in, you would first come to the holy place, and then you would come to the holy of holies. In the holy place, there was the bread of the presence, 12 loaves of bread, right? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 loaves of bread. It's interesting that Jesus did miracles with bread with his 12 disciples. But the point is that God will provide for the needs of his people and also that he will have fellowship with his people. You would also see a golden lampstand in the holy place reminding us that God keeps constant watch over Israel. Do you remember how God led them at night? A pillar of fire, (laughs) Right? He, he is going to light their way and protect them. There's also an altar of incense reminding them that God is near, that he hears their prayers. But then you come to the curtain. 
in one of our books we read to our kids, it calls the curtain God's keep out sign, right? Which is great. The curtain is the big keep out sign. God is holy, stay out. You're not, right? But inside the Holy of Holies, if you were to go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, you will find one piece of furniture, and that's the ark. People have touched this and died, right? The Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is what? God's law. The Ten Words. The Ten Commandments. But what I want to talk about now is the lid. The lid is called, does anyone know? The mercy seat, right? The, the atonement cover, right? This is, what's interesting about this, and the reason I like this picture, uh, is at the end, of the, at both edges of the lid were two, were cherubim. Angels, right? When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, when they were kicked out of God's place, what did God put there? A curtain? No. He put two angels, right? The book that Karis reads says, God put his keep out sign at the edge of the garden, right? It's a reminder, you can't come near him. Because of your sin, you can't come in, right? That's, that's the phrase. And so here are the two cherubim, right? In the garden, they had swords, very disconcerting. <laughs> they had swords. But here in the Ark of the Covenant, there are two angels at the top, and they are spreading out over the top of the lid. This is the invisible throne of God. That's not my idea. Listen to Exodus 25. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, okay, that's the lid, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. That's God talking to Moses, right? God is going to dwell among his people again, a lot like the garden, except his people die if they get too close, unlike the garden, unlike Eden. So what happens in Exodus 40 is God's glory fills the temple. God is once again among his people, with his people. But there is a massive problem. God's presence creates a problem. How can a sinful people be with God and God not destroy them? How can a sinful people have a holy God dwelling among them and God not destroy them. Do you remember, if you've been working through Samuel with this, the Ark of the Covenant is leaving all the time, right? God's glory leaves, and the Ark goes with it. They'd go into battle, what they'd take in front of them? The Ark. They need God in front of them. So God is dwelling among his people, but that's a big problem. You see, the presence of the law, just having the Ten Commandments, that didn't solve their heart problems. Do you remember what happened when God, when Moses brought the Ten Commandments down? He saw like a big naked orgy around an idol. I mean, these people are not good people, and yet God elected them. It's, it's not going well. The law does not change people. It's exactly what we saw with, with Babel. It's exactly what we saw with Noah. It's not enough to have law. Law doesn't change the heart. So God institutes the sacrificial system to deal with this problem. High level, sacrifices are offered daily. It's a bloody, bloody affair. A couple things to notice, and by the way, as we're working through Revelation now on Sunday, so much of this stuff's picking up on this, what's going on here in Leviticus. Um, but, but I want to draw your attention especially to the Day of Atonement. You can read about this in Leviticus 16. And the Day of Atonement was, it took place once a year, 
And there were two goats that were killed as a sin offering for the people of Israel. The first goat, it had its blood sprinkled where? On the lid of the ark, right? Sprinkled on God. There's a lot to think about. We'll talk about that later. But we know at least that the goat is a substitute for the people. The blood is in the life, Leviticus 17.11. The life is in the blood, rather. Right? Blood represents life. So the life is taken, and that's the consequence of sin. People can live in this arrangement because the goat, the animal, died. And the results of the atonement are seen in the second goat. Right? The second goat's the celebration goat. First goat has a bad. Second goat, he is the, the priest would lay his hand on the heads of the goat, pronounce the sins of the people, transfer them onto him, and what they do? They sent him away, right? They sent him off into the wilderness, reminding them sin is driven away from God through sacrifice. God is able to deal with sin and live with his people. But on the Day of Atonement, there's something else that took place. There was one man, the high priest, who would enter into the Holy of Holies. He would enter in one time to offer sacrifice. And the key thing that we're learning about this, there's a lot to talk about there, is that we see the people of God having a relationship with God. But it is a very strained relationship. It is not intimate, right? If you're worried that you're going to die during a conversation, not an intimate relationship, right? Especially if you can only do it once a year and there's a lot of blood involved. So we are anticipating a better sacrifice. A better sacrifice. As you know from Hebrews With Israel, the sacrifices have to be repeated day after day, sin after sin, year after year. And the priests, man, those guys just kept dying. And some of them were perverts, and some of them were idolaters, and some of them didn't love God at all, right? So there's a problem with the priests, and they keep dying until we come to Christ, whose death is once for all, never to be repeated. And you remember what happened with Christ when he died? What did he do? What happened to the curtain? He ripped it open. Right? God's big keep out sign is ripped apart. Man is invited back in to the garden. There's all sorts of connections there. Back into the presence of God. And what we notice is you don't need a temple anymore. You don't need the sacrifice anymore. You don't need a tabernacle anymore in the new system when Christ comes. Because Christ is the better sacrifice. Let me close just by reading this from Hebrews chapter 9, and then I'll give you a chance for questions. Hebrews 9, 11 says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, right? See, it's a better tent even. Not made with human hands, that is not of this creation. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Right? So we see, we can fill in part of our chart on this partial kingdom. Who are God's people? The Israelites. Okay? It's grown from Abraham's descendants, more specifically to the nation of Israel. And we've made some progress on God's rule and God's blessing. We have the law. We'll just say that for now. We have the law, and I guess you could say God's presence is the blessing. Any questions about this? 
I imagine more of this tonight was a little bit more review-ish. Any questions?